Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about extreme conservation. I'm Jen Mathiason, an optics conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. Right, um, welcome to the show. Uh, as usual, uh, let's do some news. So, um, first of all, reminder, we're on Patreon. Uh, if you'd like to join us and get exclusive bonus content and all sorts of fun little glimpses behind the scenes, please come and join us. A link to it will be in the uh, show notes as usual. And now for some real news. Now, it's gathered uh, a little bit of traction in the popular science uh, sections of things that there's been a discovery that some caterpillars eat plastic. And... Uh, <laughs> Scientists are very excited by this because they're like, oh, this could solve the world's, world's plastic problems. The, the things don't, like a plastic bag takes 400 years to biodegrade and now in a couple of hours they can eat it, right? That's great. These little things are called wax worms because they're quite fond of wax already. All I could think when I saw you this. managed to see the, the silver lining of this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> immediately I looked at this and went, Please don't enter collections. I don't want anything eating plastic as well as everything else. Please don't become an IPM problem, uh, which is a really bizarre and really conservation-y uh, kind of reaction to this. Immediately, knee jerk. No, <laughs> don't want, don't eat my precious collections. Um, uh, it's probably going to be fine. They're looking more into how they how they produce an enzyme that will uh, help break down plastic and possibly manufacturing that on a large scale, uh, as opposed to breeding loads of the caterpillars, because that would threaten the bee population who is already unhappy. I'm still sensing red flags here. Please don't, please experiment responsibly with this, (laughs) because I don't want my museum to be crawling with little caterpillars eating plastic. I wonder if we can put that through to them. Like, hi, I'm going to save the (laughs) planet. I have um, a problem with this. I have a really weird, nitpicky, odd problem about this that might never come up. <laughs> anyway, so a fascinating and possibly uh, really awesome discovery that I'm also slightly worried about. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, quite. And then something else that caught my eye and actually ties quite well into our episode is that on the uh, on Icon's website, in the news section, you can now find an article called Why Conservation Students Should Be Thinking Big. It's written by uh, conservator Lucy Branch, and she's a, a sculpture conservator, uh, and she is encouraging uh, people to think about uh, new skills that conservators of the future might need. So there's a lot of large-scale art going on in the world that will need to be looked after. So we're talking sculpture, uh, we're talking stuff stuck to buildings. We're talking really massive stuff. And she says, skills like abseiling and high ropes training might be useful <laughs> to a future conservator. And I absolutely love that. That is so hardcore. Oh, that would be amazing if conservators had to have a bit of circus training <laughs> or, or, you know, they have to do rock climbing. Oh my God. This is amazing. I got really excited about that. I, I put a link to the article in uh, the show notes because I'm, I'm quite excited about that. And uh, that's also a type of extreme conservation to me where it's, you have to dangle in front of an object uh, to actually be able to clean it. That's pretty amazing. They have things like that. Well, they, they approach problems like that a bit in the science museum group as well that, that they have, you know, 
forklift driving licenses yeah and, quite that's another you know, thing she brings up that it might be useful to be able to uh maneuver a, a, a cherry picker or <laughs> yeah. you know that yeah. sort of thing so it's uh, taking working at height to a whole different degree <laughs> yeah. uh, which uh, is fantastic uh, but yeah so uh, i got quite excited with that article uh so I'll, I'll pop a link to that uh in our uh in our show notes well, i'm not sure i fancy working at that level of height though i'm not sure abseiling yeah, is really for she, me. she does say that even if you're not comfortable with heights now <laughs> don't think that you have to stay uncomfortable with it it's like you you can challenge yourself uh-huh. and get better at it uh-huh. yeah i like small things i think i'll keep with small yeah, things. yeah, yeah. and that, that's also fine they will also need us you know ground dwelling slug like conservatives <laughs> <laughs> saying that fondly as an archaeological conservator <laughs> i like the ground the ground yeah. is really nice oh yeah. yeah although have you ever considered underground conservation <gasps> uh, i was thinking stuff like what about cave paintings <gasps> and uh uh you know they have these amazing underground temples in malta for example like people need to conserve them right i'm writing this down i'm getting ahead of myself i'm getting really excited now but that's also something that would fall under what i would uh, call extreme conservation which is what we're talking about today so we're talking about the slightly more out there ways of conserving things so it might require special skills or uh, might involve extreme conditions um, and yeah it's something that's really interesting to me because while bench work is fascinating in and of itself it's interesting when that bench work takes you somewhere else entirely as well uh, Christina, have you encountered any extreme conservation? Not necessarily done yourself, but, you know, even, um, you know, see, seen it happen or heard about it or anything like that? <laughs> uh, not. Uh, I haven't done any myself. The most extreme I've done personally is a, a gallery refurbishment, complete gallery refurbishment project where we were working in a six-story building that was also being completely renovated. And um, so to, uh, there were sort of safe routes through the building, which were, as it sounds, literally the only way you could get from one area to another oh, wow. uh, without oh. uh, falling into a hole where a floor oh, wow. wasn't anymore or where they'd taken a staircase away or whatever. So, um, you know, we spent the whole time in safety boots and hard hats and uh, high vis vests to get anywhere. Um, and uh, you had to kind of make sure you knew what the current safe route was because they switch around some um, from time to time just to make sure things were extra confusing uh but uh that's about as extreme as i've ever got but i i do know people who've worked um, in uh, places that are very hot places that are very cold it's something that we really don't need to think about in this country in the uk we we are so rarely i mean we whinge about our weather all the time but we're so rarely <laughs> beset with extreme temperatures yeah are we because it's always pretty ambient like it can be a bit chilly <laughs> but not really so we yeah. don't really have to factor in this adhesive won't work or this adhesive will be too effective in the wrong kinds of ways unless we're sending something overseas to where that is a problem and that's rare enough in itself so it's just, it's yeah i think it's extreme conservation doesn't even that for us have to be all that extreme it just has to be a bit hotter than we're used to yeah yeah quite yeah so um i think uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to listen to an interview with kathy tully who is um a conservator in a suitcase and this interview is about a year and a half old um but i i think it's so relevant to this topic so i met uh, kathy in a pub in cambridge uh, we had a little natter about what it's like working extremely short-term contracts 
not having necessarily a permanent home to go back to and living out of your suitcase for a prolonged time doing conservation. And uh, yeah, it's it's so different to to what I do because whilst my my parents think I'm quite nomadic in that I I move uh, every couple of every couple of years as where they live in one place forever. This takes it to a different degree. It's a, it's a kind of a true nomadic life for a conservator, which I thought was super interesting. So uh, we're just going to listen to uh, Kathy and me having a chat. Could you tell us a little bit about your experiences in the last year or so? Where you've been? You travelled a lot? Well, I finished my degree at UCL in September of 2014, I guess it is now, um, and worked in Cambridge for a little while, then um, a visa ran out because I'm American. So trying to find jobs uh, in America when you're just out of uh, uni, it's a little bit hard. And uh, ended up going to Qatar for four months, and then because it takes a while to get so much money to go back to the States, stayed over in the UK, went on holiday, and then went out to Lebanon for about six weeks on an archaeological dig. And now I'm back in the UK and um, waiting to work a little bit more um, with the group down in Qatar. So basically what I've been doing, I'm traveling around, mixture of object work, and but mostly uh, research. So doing a lot of research on cleaning of um, how we clean, what decision making, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a combination of whatever I could grab uh, in the way of jobs to kind of keep working in conservation. How do you cope with um, traveling for such extended periods of time? I mean, is it, is it tiring? Do you have a, a bolt hole somewhere where you, you always come back to? Or Well, I was lucky enough. Uh, so I was in Qatar for four months, and that was nice to be able to just settle down um, and work there for a while. After that, kind of went on holiday for five weeks, waiting for the next job, because it's hard to find something for only five weeks in the summer. Um so basically lived out of a suitcase, uh, traveling around Europe, went back to the States for a little bit, but and then back out to an archaeological dig. So it's exhausting um, flying around back and forth. And I'm from California. So if I go back home, it's an 11 hour flight from at least from the UK. So try to avoid that. So it's been a lot of living out of a suitcase in the UK. I traveled around Europe for a little bit with a friend. So a lot of amazing experiences, but... It's very tiring, and I didn't expect that. Yeah, and trying to pack in a small suitcase that you can manage everywhere um, for several different climates, the UK, Qatar, and um, a dig in Lebanon that's, you know, 40 degrees every day. So it's just, it's, I've gotten very good at packing, <laughs> very good at packing in small spaces, um, and meeting a lot of people around the world and relying on the kindness of strangers and sleeping on couches and spare beds. Do you find that you have to like buy new things in each country and then like discard them at the end? Or? I, I buy a few. Like uh, Qatar bought a few because I didn't have enough nice enough clothes. I didn't realize it was going to be an office setting as much as I was. So I wanted to buy a couple nicer shirts, that kind of stuff. And... There I had to discard a few things, but also I just got better at packing. Nothing's ever not wrinkled, <laughs> so everything comes out very wrinkled because it's packed in so tightly. Um, I wasn't expecting to go back to the States, go back to my parents' house. was able to do that this summer to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary, so it's kind of spur of the moment. So I was able to drop off some stuff, pick up other things, um, but I did buy a few things like, like oh, need hiking shoes, you know, yeah, shoes sure, for... Yeah. 
for the dig, which I didn't, I had a pair of tennis shoes, but didn't really work the job. So I was able to kind of do those things. Now that I'm in the UK, it's about 15 degrees. It's a little bit harder. Yeah, uh, so it's and, a bit challenging even for us who live here. <laughs> yeah. And after being in 40 degree weather for most of the year, it's just been kind of a shock. So yeah, I do kind of discard a few things, but I also bought really cheap things for like the dig. So I guess that answers uh, the next question about how you handle long-term storage of, you know, your belongings in a way. So you, you keep those um, essentially at home in California. And yeah. So my that's, parents, your, that's your home base. Yeah. My home base is my parents' house in California. I mean, they've been nice enough to store everything uh, in a several suitcases. When I moved back from the UK, um, basically they're still in those two huge suitcases. Uh, how did you end up doing this? Well, I ended up in... Um, guitar uh, just because I one of my professors emailed out a job advert I guess for somebody to work for UCL guitar and jumped at the chance it was seizing an opportunity when I came across to, uh, had you worked abroad before like you know in those kinds of countries or uh, I'd never worked in guitar in the Gulf but I did a dig in Jordan before okay. uh, two of them and then I did a, a dig in Lebanon which is actually the dig I went back to in the summer awesome. so um, I was working there I, again two years ago when I went out to Lebanon on the stake it was somebody from the university sent out an email asking for conservation students went out there for five weeks did pottery reconstruction and then my the boss that I had asked for more people. Um, I wasn't able to do it the year I had my internship, but I was able to do it this year. So basically knew it was happening, just contacted her, say, hey, I'm going to be free. I'm going to be in the region if she was interested in having somebody come out. So it was really working on the old contacts I had made and just grabbing at anything that just came across. Um, have you found that any skills have been more useful to you than others when you work as internationally as you do. I think the interpersonal skills and being able to be an easy person to work with and be a reliable and dependable person and to get things done um, and just communicate well. Yeah, I think so that's been probably the best because if you're enjoyable to work with, they'll ask you back, they'll, you know... They have positive memories of you. Exactly. And it's it works everywhere. I yeah. mean... Um, I mean, I'd love to have better language skills, but the places I've worked, we've all worked in English. So just needed to be friendly and reliable and, I don't know, flexible, I think, is the other one because... That's one of those that always comes up on job descriptions, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not even just flexible about uh, how you do your work and how you approach your work, but also flexible on when you're working and when you're going and, you know, leave times and... Uh, just kind of schedules and being able to change really quickly. I and mean, that's something I had to really learn. Yeah, think on your feet and just be willing to change and kind of go with flow. Uh, people have wondered if you feel safe traveling and staying in these countries as a female on your own. Uh, do you have any thoughts or advice on that? Or Sometimes I think it's being aware of your surroundings and what's culturally appropriate. I mean... In Qatar, never walking out in short skirts and, you know, tiny tops, that kind of thing. So just to be uh, aware, I always felt safe, um, especially in Qatar, felt safe wherever I went. It's a safe country. Um, you have to take taxis everywhere, which is kind of frustrating, but we always had people we called. So you find people you trust, you reuse them, you really um, build up those relationships as well. So it, it makes the security. 
Lebanon was a little bit different. Um, that I felt a little less safe just because of the instability and not knowing my way around. Starting to feel a little more confident, but we had riots going on in Beirut, and we weren't sure if they were going to spread down to where we were staying and that kind of thing. So for the most part, yeah, I don't, I haven't really had problems, but, you know, don't go wandering around at night, you know, yeah. be culturally appropriate. Don't y- use common sense. Exactly. And it's, I've, I haven't really found that it's a big problem. Uh, do you find that you can save up uh, or do you find that it, this is more of a paycheck to paycheck kind of thing if you work these short contracts? It depends. It depends on pay. Some places pay well with short contracts. Uh, the Gulf region, I will say, pays fairly well for short contracts. Um, you know, digs don't. They, That's they, kind of in the nature of archaeology. Exactly. And the world, unfortunately. Exactly. So you kind of, you go through and, you know, for me, I've, because I've been basically don't have an apartment. And um, when I do go back to the States, I stay with friends. I stay with my parents. Um, I don't have... You know, I don't have utilities. I don't have rent, so which is great. You also don't have a home, really, to come home to. But I have student loans that I have to pay. That's been the main thing. So I've saved up this year. I've saved up. I think probably it might change, but it just depends. Um, basically, what I make in Qatar is what I've been trying to sparse out for the entire year. And we'll see how long that goes. I'm hoping it will last me for a while till I get next, <laughs> you know, next short-term job. Fingers crossed, definitely. Exactly. Uh, how expensive is it to travel between these countries? And like, is is this something that you pay for, or is this something that your employer is willing to help you pay for? I've been really lucky because both jobs I've had, so in Qatar and Lebanon, my bosses have paid for um, the flights. Um, so didn't have to worry about that. And actually, coming from California to go to Qatar. It's a very expensive flight. So that has been paid for. And one reason why I stayed over in the the UK and Europe is because I didn't want my, my boss in Lebanon to pay for a round-trip flight from the US and back. Um, and I also you know, visit friends, stay on this side of the world. So it is quite expensive just because of where I'm, my base is. So, so but this is kind of a mix of you being a considerate employee and then being quite generous, actually. Yes. Yeah. And my, I mean... Uh, do you work with other conservatives most of the time, or do you work on your own, or as a part of a team with, you know, a mixed professionals? I think, well, again, it's the two different jobs. Um, working with other conservators, I actually like working with other conservators mm. instead of on my own. Um, you know, for a research for a university, of course, there's going to be other conservators there, and. Um, working for a conservator on her research project. So it's a, it's a group of people and then meeting a lot more archaeologists, cultural heritage uh, professionals, museum curators, and then working on site on an archaeological dig. Meet a lot of archaeologists, uh, a couple other conservators um, work there as well. So it's, it's a mix of people and you're mixing with all nationalities as well. I mean, people from all over Europe and all over kind of... Um, Middle East kind of a little bit too, which has been really kind of fascinating. But conservators mostly. I haven't been working on my own yet. Oh, so. that's good. That sounds, sounds like you, you're not lonely or anything, you know. It's, no, it's always no, no. A, And there's a always team. Yeah, there's always somebody else to bounce ideas off of. Oh, that's great. Um, and to work with. And because I've only been out for a year. So, I mean, doing research and that kind of thing, that's familiar 
but you're working on somebody else's project, you know, you need to work with that person. But working on, you know, on site doing objects, it's nice to have somebody else to bounce ideas off of, you know, when you're dealing with circumstances you're not used to, like, you know, 40, 45 degree weather and, or heat and, you know, objects that you just have not come across. Yeah. So it's, they might not have the expertise, but at least they have the ideas in the background and you can kind of go, well, if this works, yeah, let's do that. Well, maybe we should try this. Okay, let's test this. And so um, I like working with groups and I think probably continue to do that as long as I can, um, which is good for a beginning conservator, I think. Yeah, not bad. Have you found that conservation goals and ideals are uh, different uh, across different continents or... Are they similar? I mean, you know, like uh, minimal intervention, aesthetic ideals, that sort of thing, or... They're definitely different. <laughs> definitely different. And it, I think it also depends on where people are trained. Um, and then it's a mixture of where they were trained, when they were trained, and uh, the cultural, the culture that they're now in, and the museum they're now in, or the the situation. I found a lot more, you know, we're very minimal intervention, you know, with archaeological material, you leave the holes, you only do structural fills, you do those kind of things. And I've seen a lot more of not full restoration, but to complete the object, let's say it's a pot, they'll complete the pot, but make sure the fills are known as fills. So it's, it's this kind of meeting of the two where you can tell that these are not original, but the full pot would be done. Whereas we would leave like a rim, you know, part of a rim off or a hole here and there. They would um, complete it. So it's a, it's a, it's a little bit different, but I think it has to do, yeah, what society you're in, what they're looking for in the museum. Because an art museum. And the composition of the people who are working there. Exactly. So it's just, yeah, it's that good old phrase. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> it just depends. Uh, do you uh, bring your own equipment and tools with you? Or do you use what's supplied by your employer at the time? It's a mixture. Um, I working guitar, I was working with computers and that kind of thing, so I wasn't really working on objects that much. Um, on the dig, uh, I kind of gave my boss a list of things that I thought might be useful or things I thought I needed or used last time to make sure they were out on site. And she actually tracked those down, got them, because uh, a lot of things are, when you're traveling abroad, they're really hard, like acetone, solvents, um, yeah, I mean, chemicals, you can't get them. Um, you can't from permits, etc. Exactly, you can't bring them into the country. In some cases, I mean, you know, paraloids and stuff like that. Usually, you can get in. It's not too big of a problem. It just depends on where you're going and what it looks like in your bag and the extra. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, solvents. No, no, you have to get somebody in the country. And um, knowing conservators in the country, you can actually get those supplies, um, which is nice. So, finding contacts in the country you're going to, it's great. Plan ahead. I found is the number one thing to do, and I don't mean weeks. I mean three to six months ahead uh, to start getting materials. But I always bring my own tools, and probably I'll bring more of my own specialized tools and um, you know make sure I have scalpel blades and you know different things that I think if I only went a little bit of, like we requested fume silica and we got tons of it. Well, we only need a little bit. So those kind of things that are easy to pack, I probably would start bringing my own just to make sure in case we just need it a little bit here, we don't have to wait a several weeks to get it. Thank you so much, Catherine. That's all the questions I had. Now, I think this interview um, is 
uh, was interesting in that it, it really talked about uh, the difficulties of, for example, uh, get, getting supplies in a different country and how difficult it can be to uh, find trusted suppliers or to get anything in that you need. And the need to stay flexible, but also plan ahead quite meticulously because you might not yeah, be able to get in anything. Advance, yeah. yeah, so you might not be able to get anything, you know, with a couple of weeks notice. You need months to plan ahead for, you know, conserving something in a desert, uh, which uh, is pretty, pretty fascinating to me. I think, yeah, having, having what she said about her toolkit um, of being her specialist tools was really interesting because obviously people have their own equipment, but it's so bulky, you know, even just a, a box of gloves can take up far more space in your luggage than you might really care to take oh, up yeah. with gloves. <laughs> I, I go and see clients quite regularly. So uh, bringing your own, just a couple of boxes, boxes of gloves is a massive pain in the bum sometimes. And, and I don't travel internationally. So uh, yeah, so I just go on a train, which is fine. Uh, but bringing, bringing it with you on international travel and staying in hotel rooms and all that stuff. Gosh, that is, that's challenging. And the skills that she is developing as well in terms of, you know, simply interpersonal skills, as she was saying, and contacts of people all around the world is really amazing, you know. Yeah. I know, you know, abseiling is one thing. Being able <laughs> to keep keep good contacts and knowing knowing people and routes and where conservators are needed. It's I think it's true freelancing, isn't it, when you you're not in one place to build a client base, you're your client bases you you are there to do a job the thing i found really extreme was the length of time of the of each project um of as in weeks not even months sometimes Mm. um and i was just thinking about how different that is to the way that i work and the way that i find that i really um prefer working i i need months and months to feel good and settled in and i feel like i develop over time but she is working on such a short time scale that yeah that she is doing all of that five weeks here six weeks there. yeah amazing. exactly i think that's really amazing and admirable <laughs> yeah i'm i'm not sure that will be for me so i'm i'm really impressed with people who can do that i think what was interesting for me was that when kathy was talking about instability it wasn't just um, the instability that comes from short-term contracts mm. and not knowing how you're going to be able to source your tools and equipment. Um, but in a couple of cases, she was talking about political instability as well. Mm. Um, and it, working in a situation where what's happening elsewhere in the country might suddenly uh, escalate and mean that you had to abandon your project and leave the country and so on. Yeah. Um, and that, that's something that is so different from... Um, the kind of environment that most of us work in in museums. Yeah, we feel that we can we we sort of know more or less what we're going to be doing in the next weeks, months, whatever. But to have the instability to not really not really be aware of whether you're suddenly going to have to leave a place that's really it's quite scary. Though I found it interesting that she said she felt safe the entire time. Mm. Um, that's really good. Yeah, I, I got the impression that she felt like. Um, employers were good at looking after people who came in to do the jobs which is really nice to hear and uh, now we're going to listen to our next interview uh, which is with Sophie Rowe 
Today I'm talking to Sophie Rowe, conservator at the Polar Museum. Sophie has recently returned from a conservation project in the Antarctic. You came back from Antarctica in January? No, I went in January. You went in January. I came back at the beginning of March. So I spent uh, about a month exactly on uh, Horseshoe Island, which is an island off the coast of the peninsula of Antarctica. I recommend everybody go and have a look at a map, actually, if you don't know where that is. But it's about 67 degrees south, so just south of the Antarctic Circle. Um, And it has on it a historic hut, which is one of six that are managed by the United Kingdom Antarctic Heritage Trust henceforth referred to as UKAHT, um, and uh, we went there specifically to do essentially a survey of the state of the building and the artefacts in it. So I feel that um, it's probably a bit of a extreme thing to suggest that it's extreme conservation because we didn't do very much in the way of treating. We actually essentially looked at the state of it and did a kind of inventory of what's there. When I spoke to you before, you said it wasn't so much extreme conservation as extreme no. cataloguing, Absolutely. <laughs> extreme condition survey. <laughs> yes. What were the practical challenges you faced? What were not the practical? Every every single thing about it is complicated because this is a place that's 9,000 miles away. Um, And so, for example, when you're thinking ahead of time about organising a a fieldwork season in a place like that, you have to plan all of the tools that you're going to need and all the materials and all the food and your tents and your sleeping bags and absolutely everything you're going to need for working there because essentially you're out of touch with the world for that month that you're there. Um, The way I got there was I went with the RAF on a flight from Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire, which is an RAF uh, airbase, down to the Falkland Islands. And the Falkland Islands at Port Stanley have a warehouse which is used by British Antarctic Survey. Mm -hmm. um, And that was where all of our stuff that we needed for this trip was uh, depoted. And so we had to go there and do, we spent a couple of days doing exhaustive inventory and checking and repacking and making sure that the bills of lading uh, were filled in because all the work that you do in the the Antarctic is covered by um, a essentially extraordinary number of permits you have to have permits to take things there and you have to have permits to take things away and you may not leave any rubbish and if you wish to dispose of uh well things that you know you produce from the toilet you have to have arrangements for that (laughs) um um, so there was quite a lot of sort of um inventory and logistics at the point when we were in stanley Um, and then from stanley we were picked up by hms protector which is a naval ship um, and the UKHC are extremely well supported by HMS Protector. I think it wouldn't be possible for them to do a lot of their work without that backup because we had a lot, I think we had about four or possibly four and a half tonnes of things that we had to take with us. So that included obviously our food, but also a lot of tools, um, plywood for making emergency repairs to the buildings, um, lots of roofing felt, which is extremely heavy. We had a lot of fuel, we had generators, so we had diesel and petrol, um, and we also had water. So lots and lots of really heavy stuff that we had to to take with us. And that's not something that you can put onto a cruise ship, even if a cruise ship were coming. We arrived anyway in uh, Marguerite Bay, which is the part of um, the uh, Antarctic Peninsula where Horseshoe Island is. And it is stunningly beautiful. Mm. There are mountains that come right down to the sea. And the feeling that you have when you're there is it's a bit like the high Alps, if you've ever been, where the mountains are very, very sharp. And there's beautiful ice all over them. And they look extraordinarily impenetrable. And then they come right down to the sea. So they're not very high, actually. They're often sort of five or 600 metres high. But they have a feeling of being much, much higher than that because they're so 
sort of inaccessible looking. Um, and then obviously wonderful wildlife, amazing birds, whales, seals, penguins, you know, all that kind of thing. And that was really great. Um, so we arrived on the 28th of January and we were supposed to land on Horseshoe and there was just a lot of brash ice around the island, which is sort of chopped up little bits of icebergs. Mm-hmm. The icebergs are always breaking up and, and there were lots of lumps and bumps of this. And we couldn't take protector close up to the island because it's not deep enough. So you would have to ferry everything backwards and forwards on small boats. Um, And so they have three different boats they can use to help you get backwards and forwards, but they're much smaller and none of them could really cope with the ice on that day. So then we came back on the second day on the 29th and managed to find a place where we could land all of the equipment. But it was about a kilometre from where we needed to be. And this is an island that, although there is a, a historic hut on it and it's visited occasionally by tourists, essentially there aren't paths. And, mm. you know, it's just ice and snow and rocks and so forth. And then you are with this incredible, heavy, awkward stuff that you have to schlep across this so you terrain. Had we had to carry the four and a half tons of... Well, <laughs> not quite all of it. We, we, we prioritised. Um, but there were quite a lot of things that we had to try and carry, including mm. things like gas bottles, a lot of our food. So I walked backwards and forwards with about 20 kilos at a time, many, many, many times. And the Marines, this is where the Marines were just brilliant, because they were competing with each other about who could carry the most. <laughs> and they were saying, this, oh, it's so heavy, I can't get it onto my back. If you just get it onto my back, I'll carry it. And then they were sort of yomp off carrying some improbable <laughs> amount, like 60 kilos of stuff, which was a like, gas bottle, you know, a full-size yeah. gas bottle and things like that. Extraordinary. Um, and uh, so without them, I think we'd probably still be ferrying things because it was, <laughs> there was an awful lot. The, first, the initial part where we landed was very um, sort of cliffy. And so there was a kind of human chain running between the boat and then the point where we could start separating off and, and carrying things. Um, and then the next day we were found that we were able to get a much closer to our, our proper site where we were going to be based. And, um, and so they landed the rest of the stuff there. But that was a day where we had a lot of rain and sleet and we all got super wet. And what was also lovely about the Marines was that this was just, by anybody's standards, you would say, this is pretty grim. You know, we're hauling heavy stuff and it's horrible weather and it's really wet and it's grim. And the worse it got, the happier they were. And they were all sitting laughing and we were all eating this, you know, lovely pasta that they brought us from the ship and in the sleet (laughs) with wet hands and everything else and getting really cold. But having a high old time because, you know, the worse the weather is, the better they like it, apparently. Was that the point at which you started to wonder what you'd let yourself in for? (laughs) I think it was a real eye-opener about getting wet actually I mean Mm -hmm. people asked me beforehand about how cold it was going to be and for the time of year I think people would anticipated that it would be about minus five at night and then maybe up to about 10 degrees in the daytime we've got almost in the time that I was there we had almost no snow but we did get sleet on that Mm -hmm. first day and actually that probably was the worst weather that we had on that day and in that time I soaked through all my gloves and then it's really difficult to dry anything because yeah. it's just not warm enough. And so this is why you have loads and loads of spares of things. But um, yeah, it was an eye opener because once you've got wet clothes, it's suddenly much harder to get warm. Um, we were sleeping in um, two-man tents. We had a two-man tent each, which was lovely. And, uh, and then we also had a, a kind of working tent. So Michael, who was the carpenter on the expedition, I should probably introduce the people who were on the expedition. We were four, so me, conservator, never been to the Antarctic before. Then we had Liesel and Michael, who have both been working for UKHD for many years, doing uh, maintenance work on all of the huts that they have. So they run six huts, and Liesel and Michael have been going around all these different huts doing that kind of repair, emergency repair, and making sure they don't blow down in wind every winter. It's extremely valuable work that they've been doing. Um, so they're both very, very experienced with the Antarctic. Um, and then the last person we had was Al Fastier, and he is actually the um, building's project manager at New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust. 
and New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust manage the uh, the much more famous huts that Scott used, Shackleton, Borchgravink. Uh, very recently they've had a campaign to work on the Edmund Hillary hut which was used in the 1950s uh, transantarctic expedition with Vivian Fuchs. So he's enormously experienced um, with working in these kinds of conditions um, although the work that they do is all on the Ross Ice Shelf or the majority of it's on the Ross Ice Shelf so the terrain is completely different um, and conservators might remember that there was for a period quite a, a long number of seasons where people could go down and work on Mm-hmm. Um, and artifacts from those huts on the ice. They actually had porter cabins set up on the ice and people spent the winter there and did the conservation treatments. Um, and it would be great to be able to do something similar for UKHT, but in practice I don't know how possible that is because we're talking about rocky islands as opposed to a nice flat ice shelf. So whether it's actually feasible to run the same kind of conservation project is one of the things that has to be decided now as a result of what, the work we've been doing. Um, but you were asking about uh, other sort of logistical aspects or difficulties there are in working in those conditions. And one of them is that it's cold and things like batteries don't work very well. Mm. So I went, to, <laughs> I went to make up some solution of uh, Clue Cell G. I, I wanted to do some uh, basic repairs to, to pieces of paper that were stuck to the walls that, that needed a bit of um, just tacking down and, and making safe. And uh, I went to make a solution of Clue Cell G and I, I had brought the, um, the weighing scales and I brought a spare battery and everything else and I could not get them to work and I wore it inside my clothes for a day to see if I could warm it up and coax it into life and I couldn't. So I ended up having to make my solution up you know, in a best guess kind of way. Mm. So it was sort of vaguely whatever percentage it was. Um, and we had similar problems with the computers as well where you know the computers we had wouldn't accept charge unless you went around wearing them in your clothes yeah. for a while. And I think... It's something that's quite a well-known problem um, with cold weather working, but it's when you actually think about gathering a lot of information and trying to digitise it, and then you have these kinds of issues. It it does make it much more challenging to do. So did you have Um, to record everything with pencil and paper? Yeah, that is what I did, and I'm now in the process of digitising it afterwards. (laughs) Um, So that, yes, is quite time-consuming, naturally. What about actually working in cold conditions? Um, I can imagine if your hands are cold and, and... It's a yes. You go outside and jump up and down a lot. <laughs> you do. I mean, because in the nature, I think anyone who's done a condition survey knows mm. it's, it's not enormously physically active. You know, you actually, if you're looking at artifacts within this uh, uh, historic hut, I was trying to avoid moving things more than absolutely necessary um, because I was trying to leave things as much as possible, kind of in situ. So I wasn't moving around very much, and I did get cold. Um, and so I would just go outside and do some star jumps and try and warm up again and obviously wore wore lots of clothes as well lots of hats, I think I had two hats on at all times Um, also because I couldn't wash properly so my hair became horrifying and I needed to cover it up (laughs) so but um, and the other thing was we ate so many meals we had four meals a day because well partly we worked about 12 hours a day we started working at about half past seven and finished about half past seven in the evening and then sometimes carried on into the evening doing computer work um, but yeah, so we broke it up a bit by having unbridled sessions with peanut butter and crackers and chocolate and all sorts of things. And uh, it was it was fun. I enjoyed that part. <laughs> what did you have to do in the way of preparation? Um, you say the other members of your team had been down south before, but you hadn't. So we had uh, in the UK in July, um, this is the July before we went down, we had a week where we did training. Um, and quite a lot of this was... Um, involved meeting with the architects who are consulting on how the building should be managed. So one of the interesting questions is when interpreting this hut and the history of it for an audience of people coming down south, 
um, at what point do you draw the line and say the history of this is now this is the history as opposed to the use mm -hmm. because it's been used as a facility you know last year I expect people were in it using it for that but uh, I think yeah, that still remains to be decided. I mean, a natural line could be drawn at the point when dogs stopped being used in the Antarctic, which was in 1992. Or you might take take the view that you want to kind of present mostly its history in the 1950s and 60s when it was very actively used as a surveying base um, for mapping and uh, meteorological work and geological work in the peninsula. Sorry, you did ask me about the training. To go back to the training, um, we had training in certain sort of quite practical things like ladder training and roof training and harness training in case we needed to get up onto the roof and making sure we could do that safely. Um, we also met the architects and talked to them a lot about what they already knew about the building and then the kind of information they wanted to gather about the building. There were some quite sort of complicated conversations about asbestos because there's quite a lot of asbestos in the structure um, and part of the attic has actually been sealed off um, in a previous campaign um, in about five years ago I think they came sealed off part of the attic because there's that loose asbestos insulation up there which are clearly not very good for you. We also talked about the kind of information we wanted to gather from the artefact survey which is what I was involved in. Um, so when I went out nobody knew exactly how many artefacts there were and there was a guess that it might be 10,000 or it might be fewer than that, it might be just 4,000 or so. Nobody really quite knew so it was we were laying bets all the way through how many it would end up being. Um, and it is a bit of a guess because quite a lot of the artefacts are things like tins full of screws and so you kind of guess how many <laughs> screws there are in the box um, because there wasn't very much time to gather all this information but the best guess at the moment is it's in the region of 7,750 Did you artifacts. manage to look at all of them? I took photographs of everything wow. and, um, but some of those things have to be kind of recorded as um, groups so mm -hmm. if you have a shelf with an awful lot of food tins on it you'll tend to regard them as a group of things rather than give each tin an individual identity. So all of those things were um, identified and also labelled. Um, and the labelling was something where I was very keen to try and do that in such a way that it wouldn't be too intrusive because it would be a great shame to go into what is a very atmospheric. You go in and you feel as if you've walked back in time. It's lovely. So all of that atmosphere is there. And I think if you went in and then just saw hundreds of little, little white labels on everything, it would very much detract from that so I was quite careful to conceal the label so although everything is labelled it's uh, it's often labelled where you have to be a bit artful and look for them because like lots of Bakelite switches with labels underneath where they're not very obvious and round the back of the tins and all that sort of thing so I hope that it, it's been done in a way where it's not too obvious to anyone else How did you label them? I think um, there's been a bit of work done by your predecessor at the Polar Museum on um, sort of labelling yes. techniques for yes, objects that's in right. very cold conditions did you, did you find that you were able to label them with sort of b72 and ink no no right. <laughs> i didn't do that um so one of the things that is uh, a problem with b72 is that the acetone doesn't always go off and because i actually had to do this work in the cold so when you're working in the cold and you have no option to warm things up you you sort of have to accept that paranoid isn't going to work and i did do quite a lot of testing before i went out um, so uh, NZHT have also done a thing where they've used Tyvek soaked in paraloid, which they've stuck on with paraloid. Mm -hmm. um, and because I was worried about using paraloid, I ended up experimenting with Lascaux um, mm -hmm. acrylic dispersions. So I had 498HV and 360HV. Actually, 360, I think, is no longer available, which is a great pity because it's the one that works the best <laughs> for this kind of situation. Because it has, I'm assuming this is why, but I think because it has a a uh, low glass transition temperature and it's quite tacky at room temperature it's actually still nice and tacky even at five degrees or so which was about temperature i was applying it at 
Um, and because it's water-based and I was writing on the Tyvek with um, an alcohol-based pens, archival pens, um, I didn't actually have to do the whole thing of soaking the Tyvek in paraloid first mm-hmm. because it wasn't coming through. So it was perfectly possible just to write the Tyvek label and then stick it on using the acrylic dispersion. Um, so that's what I ended up doing, um, except where I had objects where I knew that I was labelling a group and that they were eventually going to be separated out. And there I've just tied on labels rather than mm-hmm. do a more permanent kind of labelling. But I have heard from New Zealand side that sometimes the paraloid labels do come off because the TG is not quite low enough, if you yes. see what I mean. Um, I think it gets too brittle yes. at some of the temperatures that they experience. But the Ross shelf has very different conditions from what we have in the peninsula, significantly further south for a start. Did you find other areas where you had to modify the sorts of treatments you carried out or the kinds of materials you were able to use because of the conditions you were working in? Well, because I wasn't really doing conservation treatment as such, it didn't really come up. Um, And uh, also, the condition survey part was a very, very simple condition survey. It was purely a stability score. We were scoring between one and four, where four are things that are really, really urgently in need of conservation and and are actively deteriorating. It was a particularly amusing one, which was a, um, a tin of salt where the tin had just absolutely disintegrated and you were left with literally a pillar of salt <laughs> on the kitchen shelf with the kind of rust in a sort of ring around it. That was definitely a four. Um, and then quite, I think the majority of things that are in a bad way are metals. Um, there's quite a lot of surprising amount of rubber. There are lots of rubber boots and waders and things like that. And then quite a lot of rubber insulation on things. Because this is the 1950s, you're getting some early plastics creeping in. All the door handles are made of Bakelite. Mm-hmm. Um, Bakelite is very stable, but even the, the more worrying kind of rubbery compounds are doing fantastically well because it is so cold. And of course, that's one of the things people suggest for those materials is to keep them in the cold to reduce the oxidation. So those um, and textiles and wood all doing surprisingly well and a lot of the papers not in too bad a condition but because it's inherently vulnerable that's the other the other material where it probably is the stuff that needs some attention sooner rather than later but the metals for sure are the by far the biggest challenge. What about the environment there? You mentioned that you'd had sleet um, and it's obviously very cold is it quite humid at times as well? Well this is something where we still haven't got data. Data loggers are there, but we don't have data from them at this point to say. But it's possible to, to see from the condition of artefacts in the building where you're getting issues with moisture. So, for example, there's one room where there was a lot of mould, um, and it is a space which underneath, uh, the building's actually built onto sort of stilts at one end, um, because the ground slopes away. Mm-hmm. And uh, people have put an awful lot of bits and bobs under there, and also it tends to get, it's on the side of the building that gets drift, so the snow is blown around and then it all sort of just settles there and becomes a great kind of icy tongue next to the building. And then we've also got places where you've got clear holes in the fabric of the building, um, so around doors and windows and so forth, and where moisture is coming in from those, you're getting a lot more problems with rust and, you know, well, also to some extent a bit of rot in the wood is creeping in as well. Yeah. So is there anything you can do to mitigate that, to sort of help preserve the objects better in the longer term, or do you just have to sort of work with what the conditions are now, secure the fabric of the building as much as you can, but basically well, leave I think it as it is. It's it's a very interesting question because if you were not working 9,000 miles away with... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and also in a continent where, you know, there's an enormous amount of legal framework. I mean, I mentioned earlier about 
you know, the, the whole issue of waste and the impact that you make in the course of your activities on the environment. Um, and all of that legislation that exists is very strongly geared towards protecting the environment. And so introducing systems that need a lot of power to be spent, I mean, you know, electrical power from whatever, is, is just difficult. Um, realistically, I think you have to reckon on the most passive methods you can um, just because also things break down and then what are you going to do <laughs> you know there's nobody there keeping an eye on it there's nobody yeah. f- physically present on that island very regularly it's visited uh, we had something like in that month five visits from cruise ships um, but actually relatively few make it that far south yeah. so um, that's a really interesting question but it is obvious that keeping your building secure and weather tight is a hugely important aspect of you know what you can do um, Intrigued by the sort of status of this building, I mean, obviously, by carrying out a, an inventory and starting to label the objects, um, you're starting to treat it more as a museum mm. um, or possibly a monument, I suppose. But as you say, it's still used sometimes as a refuge and presumably would still be if people were in dire need. Yes. It's, this, for me, I have to say, professionally, has been one of the most interesting parts of the project. Um, it's actually the hut and the six, well, all six huts that are run by UKHT are designated as historic sites and monuments um, under the Antarctic Treaty and have been to, I think it's 1996. So, but despite the fact that they are historic sites and monuments, they have been used as refuges up until you know, quite recently. But the understanding now is very much that we're going to try and avoid that unless it's absolutely, absolutely necessary and try and understand these more as historic sites and treat them as just as you would go to a National Trust property. You wouldn't then go and sleep on one of the beds and go and use the privy, <laughs> theoretically. You, really, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't contemplate it. And I think it's quite interesting when you talk to people who don't come from a conservation background about yeah. these huts, even though they're only from the 1950s, when you put it like that, when you say, if this was the National Trust, you would know how to behave. Yeah. It is sort of like the National Trust. It's just a small trust, but it is essentially that is what they're aiming for. Uh, it isn't just about how the huts are used now, but also how they're managed and how they're maintained. And one of the things that's come in um, with the sort of recent move towards essentially abiding by the spectrum standard and the accreditation standard that we use in the UK, I and mean, we're not technically bound by it because it's offshore, but actually that's those are the standards we're trying to work to with managing this site. Um, I think if you come from outside that world, that museum world, it can look arbitrary and awkward and possibly in some ways impractical to try and impose that standard on a site of this kind. And the people who've been involved in you know, managing them up until now I think it, you know, it's not always easy for them to quite see where where it all comes from, and I think they generally do get it. And I think if you have done it that way and are now being asked to do it in a different way, it can feel like an implicit criticism of what you did before. And that's really important to understand. If they hadn't done what they did in the past, there wouldn't be anything to preserve. I think, as, you know, before you go any further, you have to understand those previous maintenance efforts are not undermined at all by the fact that we've now shifted a bit to a a different approach. So what's likely to happen next now? You've done the inventory, you've identified some objects that are in need of conservation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do hope very much that some conservation will happen. I I think that uh, the plan at the moment for UKHT is to do similar exercise with some of their other huts where they also need to do a kind of full inventory and... um, you know, stock take and also uh, understanding of the building. 
So once those things have happened, then I think they'll be in a position to plan their conservation efforts. And whether it's possible to run them in tandem with the surveys or not, I think is something that is uh, you know still being discussed because we've only only very recently got back with all of our information, <laughs> and there's there's obviously a lot of decision making and planning to go ahead. So as I understand it, the the next concrete thing that will happen is that we'll do a very similar survey. I say we, I'm not sure it'll be me, but uh, a similar survey will be done at Stonington, which is uh, about not very far away from Horseshoe, and then. After that, you know, we'll have to see where where they go with it. But, um, yeah. So you've come back to work at the Polar Museum, which is your day job, um, in a post that's funded by UK AHD. Do you feel that your experience of actually going to the Antarctic continent has made you see the day job differently? Yes, I think I, I definitely would say that working at the Polar Museum for you know a few years before going to the Antarctic, and and particularly because we did a, a big Antarctic cataloguing project of all the Antarctic artifacts that we have in the Polar Museum collection, um, and so I felt oh I've seen so many of those Andrew Lusk onions tins. <laughs> it's really lovely to see them all in their context, um, and also I think to have a better appreciation of some of the people who you meet around the institute. Who I don't think I'd ever really thought very much about what they were doing in the Antarctic and now I feel these are people I must talk to and (laughs) learn everything they can tell me about life with the Falkland Island Dependency Survey um, in the 1950s and 60s. So um, that's really great and really enriching and I think it's a fantastic opportunity as well to to flesh out that story. You know, in in, in my, back in a long time ago, I used to work on Egyptian artefacts and you never get the chance to ask an ancient Egyptian anything. (laughs) And so you really, it makes you appreciate that possibility tremendously. Um, I think coming back to the day job after an experience like that is uh, it's harder than you would imagine <laughs> because they've had a tremendous adventure um, and it's an enormous privilege also to essentially camp on a desert island for that kind of time in that sort of environment. It's uh, really a very, very special experience um, and I loved it. I really loved it. But uh, yes, I think it makes me also very grateful for things like, you know, even in, in a relatively small museum without great resources, we do have a weather-type building, we have decent environmental control, I can turn on dehumidifier if I feel I need to, um, you know, so many, many things seem so much more straightforward in a yeah. way, and that it, that's good. It's, it's quite nice to feel that you've got quite an easy life in a museum by comparison. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to The C Word. Thank you. So I loved that interview. I thought it was really really interesting and I think I learned quite a lot about the different projects um and my my very first impression of her first her the first part of what she was saying was um anything where you have to involve the army or similar <laughs> groups of people yeah. Yeah. you know that it's a different kind of project to others <laughs> um, you need burly men possibly yeah. armed to like yeah, exactly. help you lug things 60 kilos oh my god um I, yeah, I, that is an amazing, amazing feat. And it put me in mind of um, of the Dave and Attenborough, the making of um, filming. Yeah, uh, actually. When they, when they have to move all of their equipment to places Ooh. where there are no people and no, no access. And it's, it's all um, very, very hard. So uh, in my mind's eye, as she was, as she was describing it, I was thinking, oh, wow, yeah, I can imagine the rocks and penguins and... <laughs> and all that obviously is entirely alien to me. Um, it was. It sounded a bit like almost 
being in space that you're so yeah the access is so hard and you've got to you know take your waste with you if you if you've got too many people yeah. it's just it's amazing the the project yeah. there and the um the levels to which they are maintaining the landscape is is amazing yeah absolutely i enjoyed the uh uh the real value of pencil and paper <laughs> that came across when when you can't trust your laptop to charge or turn on because it's very cold um but yeah it's yeah so again this reliance on technology uh it might not work out uh in extreme circumstances um and i just i just i kind of like that they had to revert to the traditional methods that would have been used by the people very much who built these huts for example and such an exciting challenge isn't it to yeah. think right what don't i have this is what I can do. It's really, really cool. It's very MacGyver <laughs> conservation, uh, which I love. <laughs> I did ask Sophie um, after the interview um, if there was anything that they'd forgotten and that they wished they'd brought, but she said no. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> disappointingly, they'd planned well. <laughs> I would have been I mean, all regrets. You get there and then realise that you've forgotten your pencil. <laughs> no pencil sharpener. Um, no! But just the sheer amount of planning that went into this then yeah they uh, you, they, they planned pretty thoroughly and it, and it worked out um, um the thing about pencils reminds me of this apocryphal story um that's often told uh, um during the sort of most intense space race days where the russians and the americans were competing to see who could uh, get furthest into space and so on and um, you, you often see this thing about how the uh, ballpoint pens basically don't work in space. Oh, yes. And the Americans spent millions of dollars developing a special pen that will work in space. Of course and they did. so the story goes, the Russians just took a pencil. Um, and actually... <laughs> I want that to be true. Is that true? I would love that to be true. It's not true. You can't use pencils in space either because apparently you get lots of graphite dust and shaping. Yeah, the problem then will be that gets in everywhere, which is bad. Yeah, oh. absolutely. So it's a great story, but it's sadly, a brilliant it's not story. True. But it did, so it kind of reminded me of that. But it also made me think, well, actually, um, and this ties in with what you were saying, Chloe, uh, about it being like uh, being in space. Have there been any conservation in space yet? Oh, that, that <laughs> I was going to say conservatives in space. Now that's something I want to see. Um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't think there's ever been an astronaut trained conservator yet. Um, I'm so not up for trying. <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, now I'm thinking that you know how they uh, technically go into space with these uh, fancy flights now for like billionaires. Oh, uh, yeah. Could could you do a bit of experimental uh, conservation? <gasps> In that environment where you're in zero gravity. <laughs> oh, that would just be <laughs> adhesive everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't want to spill your, your <laughs> metal cellulose there, would yeah, you? Quite. Worse than normal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was really, really interesting interview. I was also really impressed with how much uh, kind of foot traffic they got. Like three cruise ships a day. <laughs> Jesus, that's... Quite a lot of people. I don't think we get that sometimes in Greater Manchester. Yeah, so that's a lot of people. <laughs> so 
yeah, I was just kind of impressed with that because I kind of thought I hear someone who visits once in a blue moon when a cruise ship happens to pass by. Not this is a this is a tour stop where yeah. we actually actively offload people and go go have a look at the thing. It's the only thing to look at. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So I'm always thinking about hazards, obviously, um, not in a scaredy cat kind of way, in a in a collections kind of way. And I found it um, really interesting what she was saying about asbestos, um, with asbestos not only being in, um, obviously, we've got the integral part of the building, but then the objects that they have. And it made me think that they seem, that project seems to be, you know, in the middle of nowhere, better at asbestos management than some museums are in this country that it's such a sort of specific problem um to have that it's you know it's interesting quite specialist knowledge do you also think that you're more hazard away in an extreme environment than you might be in uh, a kind of everyday environment where you're so used to everything anyway that it might not occur to you that something is a hazard or that something is worth taking seriously maybe but i i'd counter that to be honest with i mean obviously i've i've been trained specifically on quite a lot of different specific types of hazards asbestos being one of them and i think in that situation if i hadn't been trained in asbestos um identification my priorities would be not hazards in there it it would be like my personal safety and the group's personal safety (laughs) and am i gonna freeze to death oh yes is a penguin gonna eat me (laughs) (laughs) only under extreme circumstances (laughs) I don't think I'd be suited to this sort of this sort of project. It's amazing. It is amazing, but I it is could amazing. not. I don't think I could do it myself. Personally, I'm. I mean, adventures are great and stuff, but I'm. I'm You're good. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really glad we heard from Sophie. That's really good. So I think some overall themes from both of these has been the importance of planning. And the importance of thinking of on your feet and being flexible. I think because conservation is so new, lots of conservators are, in a way, carrying out extreme conservation anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, because objects are so different and they keep bringing new challenges all the time. Um, so even if you've treated a similar, apparently similar object before, Um, There's no guarantee that what worked then is going to work this time and so on. And so I think a lot of the time, conservators, particularly in some areas of conservation, are having to kind of make it up as they go along and and that they're really kind of at the cutting edge of of treatment and so on and collection care. In some sense, that is kind of extreme, actually. A lot of what we do hasn't been tested before, um, hasn't really been used before, tried before, whatever. I'm just, I'm just making the case as a kind of uh, desk jockey. Yeah, yeah, no, quite. No, no. <laughs> what, we, what we do is also amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And extreme. <laughs> we can be extreme uh, without getting too cold or wet. I think, is, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, basically. But I, I mean, in, in some ways it is. It's, it's not like doing something that's been tried before. There is an element of uh, kind of uncertainty and danger as well. As usual, if you have any comments, questions or corrections, please let us know. We love hearing from you. Patreon shout out. Thanks so much to Irina for joining us on Patreon. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenna Mathiason. Special thanks to Sophie Rowe and Cathy Tully. 
can check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us at theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by DD Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This has been a Wooden Dice production. Boom! Yeah! Woo! I love that I still keep those in. <laughs>